Let's get right to work. Um, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 23. Matthew 23 this morning. This is where Jesus goes from dialogue to monologue. It's where he's giving what I've titled kind of as a theme for this chapter. Uh, it's the seven woes to the Pharisees. A woe judgment is a, it's a curse judgment. It's the judgment that Isaiah pronounced on himself when he stood before the Lord in glory and felt himself spiritually disintegrating before the Lord's presence, though he as a believer was able to survive that. If people do not repent under a woe judgment, they are cursed forever, cursed in eternity. These are severe and strict and heavy judgments that Jesus is giving right at the close of his Passion Week, right before he's going to die. He goes from being deposed by several religious groups, as we've been talking about, that were trying to take him out of his messianic mission to strike him out of his position as the self-proclaimed Messiah. They were trying to discredit him, disqualify him, remove him. And so he was able to kind of block and parry and survive all of those attacks. And then counterstrike with a monologue that is probably the most severe rebuke given throughout Scripture to anyone. The woe judgments begin at verse 13. The verses that we're going to look at, verses 1 to 12, is prologue to all of that. And really it's talking about the sin that is sparking these woes. It's a sin of hypocrisy, being duplicitous, being not the same on the outside as you are on the inside, being a fake or a facade. And then even beneath that sin is the pride that fuels it, the self-exaltation. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. It's self-exaltation and pride that fuels hypocrisy where you put on sort of this selfish armor to believe that you're someone who you really are not. Now, this is an indicting sin to the Pharisees, and we, I think, quickly want to relegate that to them and then and not apply it to ourselves, but we need to take a look in the mirror and say, in what areas will the Lord expose us for the hypocrisy that we still need to repent of, the things that we need to work through? And that's what a warning and a woe judgment like this can be for us. It can be a healthy though sort of thorny and prickly, um, you know, walk through the briars of this uh, judgment chapter, it can be very helpful and healthy for us. Perhaps nothing sickens us more than when someone is found out or discovered to not be who we thought that they were. Um, It saddens us. It makes us sort of lose faith in humanity when we find out whether a celebrity, a sports hero, a politician, even worse, a spiritual leader is found out or exposed to be in sin. It's sort of moving from the penthouse to the outhouse in a moment. It's a lifetime of perceived integrity that's built up sort of in the plus column that's immediately zeroed out to minus and negative in a moment. It's devastating. It's integrity where you're the same versus duplicity where you're two-faced. And the damage that's done to the conscience in that personally is really hard to survive and live through. But what's worse is the devastation it does to people's kids 
or people's loved ones or people who are like kids to them, followers or spouses. The damage done there is really difficult, especially when it's a spiritual leader where it undermines confidence in God to little ones who are looking on or undermines um, faith in God's word or the gospel. All those things um, are important for us to hear about and think about even from God's word to be warned against, to be inspired, to make right. No leader, no person is perfect. Everyone has uh, things that happen to them or or cause and effects from sin, but a good leader is someone who makes a bad decision and then turns around and makes a good decision. A good leader is someone who doesn't leave something a mess, but cleans it up. A good leader is a good repenter. A good leader is someone who is intreatable, who has the walls down, who is approachable, who's not perfect, but is blameless. His repentance is as notorious or as big as his sin. If it's public sin, then it needs to be dealt with publicly. If it's private sin, privately. A good leader is someone who makes things right and will listen to a passage like this and not just look down on others and say, oh, this is for them. No, this chapter is for us. James 3.1 is one of the haunting passages for the preacher, for any Bible teacher, It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. It's just left at that point. What does that judgment look like? What does it mean? How long will it be? We don't know. But it haunts us because we open the Bible, or I do, and I think, what's my judgment going to look like? Well, that can either depress me or inspire me. And it should inspire all of us to say, I want integrity. I want holiness. The holiness that's through the grace of Christ, but through repentance. This isn't just binding, it's freeing. And it's seven woes that begin on verse 13. But first, a warning to look at hypocrisy's threat. What sparked the woes? Why did Jesus at this point kind of become unhinged in his rebuke? This is the hard monologue of Christ before he's going to the cross. And so we need to listen to him and listen to what he says. He's about to go dark in terms of his speaking because he's going to be incarcerated and tried and say very few things as he goes to the cross. But now he's saying a lot of things and I want you to listen. This is, if you're taking an outline, um, extinguishing hypocrisy's threat. How do you deal with hypocrisy in your own life is the question. It's four symptoms of hypocrisy are found in in what we're going to look at in verses 1 through 10. And then we're going to look at two solutions to hypocrisy. So four symptoms, first of all, of hypocrisy. The first is a hypocrite will block truth by their duplicitous living. You'll literally overwhelm the truth in your life or truth that you speak, what you say, you'll overwhelm it or block it from others by what you do. If you don't live the truth that you speak, then it blocks it in people's lives. Look at verses one to three. It says, then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do for they preach, but do not practice. Let's stop there. First of all, Jesus is addressing scribes and Pharisees. 
And he's addressing a lot of people. It's the great throng of people, according to Mark 12's parallel. There's a lot of people here at the temple steps, and Jesus is teaching. He's giving the monologue, as I've mentioned. He's been approached by the different religious groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the elders, the scribes. And now he's laser targeting the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the keepers of the law. They were the um, grammatus, as they were called. They were the ones who governed God's word. After the children of Israel came out of exile, sort of pre the intertestamental period, uh, that, that period right at the end of the Old Testament where Malachi, the last prophet, had spoken, the scribes were left as the keepers of the law. There were no more Old Testament prophets at that point. And so God's word had, had spoken. God had spoken, and this was their, God's word. And so they would keep it, and through the intertestamental period, they were the governors of it. And so they were highly regarded as those who were protecting God's word. Remember, God's word had been given from the angels to Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses gave it to Joshua to bring it into the promised land. Joshua then passed it on to elders and then prophets would prophesy the word of God. And then synagogues were sort of these houses where the word of God was being spoken And the scribes were the keepers of it, and they were the teachers of it. They were the copiers of it. And they would teach, along with the Pharisees, in Moses' seat. You see that in verse 2. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Moses' seat was a stone seat, and sort of in the front, in a pronounced way, in the synagogue, where the word of God was spoken. And it was a very high and authoritative position to speak God's word from. The scribe was basically the self-pronounced officer of Moses. They were the successor of Moses. They were speaking as if God was speaking through them as if they were Moses because they were in Moses' seat. And they viewed themselves in this very official and formal way. The language says in the Greek that they would, they sit, would sit themselves on Moses' seat. They were self-proclaimed authoritarians. Think of the highest chair of the highest university in the land. They were, the, they were seated in that chair over that department. And so there's great gravity there. In Roman Catholic theology, you know that there is the Pope. And when he speaks, he speaks ex cathedra. You've heard that phrase, Latin phrase. It means from the chair, out of the chair. And when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he believes that he's speaking literally for God in an infallible way, infallibly. That's the error of the Roman Catholic Church as they prop up the traditions of their leadership, of their cardinals, of their bishops, of the Pope. They prop up that teaching alongside of scripture and they make it in equal weight. And that's the error that is to not be obeyed. That was the error that was happening in the synagogue, by the way. The word was spoken, but also extra biblical traditions were laid on top of people. There was corruption here because those who would speak would not live out what they would say. Look at verse 3. It says, so do and observe what they tell you. Do and observe the word of God, but not the works they do, for they preach and do not practice. You know the phrase that we um, say in English from this, uh, or say in modern day, uh, from verse 3, we say, practice what you preach, right? Practice what you preach. Live it out. Well, they weren't living it out, and 
what's interesting from this text is that Jesus is dividing out the word of God that they speak when they speak in purely the scriptural manner. You need to do that. When the word of God is spoken, even from Moses' chair, from scribes and Pharisees that he's condemning, he's saying, obey the word of God. It's almost like, look, don't blame the publishing house for the Bible that you have. If there's corruption there, if you have the word of God, that is God's word. So that's not what Jesus is condemning. The word of God is always powerful. It's the lifestyle behind it. Don't live the way that they live. Don't live in an empty way um, like these scribes and Pharisees were. They're empty of the truth, even though they're speaking pure truth. 2 Timothy 3.15 says that God's word is inspired. It's under, it comes by way of inspiration. And it's profitable for the man of God to obey it. 2 Timothy 3.15 and 16. Jeremiah 15.16 says, Your words were found and I ate them. And the words became to me a joy and delight to my heart. Jeremiah loved the Bible. We love the Bible. In Philippians 1, 15 through 18, Paul, remember he was in jail and he said people were mocking him in his preaching ministry. They were mocking him for being in jail. And they're saying he's, he's a false teacher, a false apostle because he's in jail and we're out freely preaching. And Paul could have been offended by that, but he said, you know, they preach out of selfish ambition thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, but only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. As long as the word was going out, Paul was okay with it. And he said, I will rejoice in that. Think of it this way. A ship that has a you know, hole in it, and it's corroding and, and, and is not seaworthy, but it's going into port, but it's bringing goods that are preserved inside the hull. The goods are still good, even if the ship is corrosive on the outside. So this sharp distinction is made clear to hold high the word of God, but also to be warned equally by the duplicity. What's so sad is that you have pure truth going out and a duplicitous life at the same time. So this is all good. And the solid gold of the word of God is flying in the face of a duplicitous life. There's a big disconnect. Remember Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, again, we can condemn the scribes and Pharisees for this duplicity, but we do need to look in the mirror. How many times do we hear the word of God and we're disengaged? How many times do we um, give mouth service to what we believe, but we sort of let our hearts go? And I'm not saying that for us to, you know, be just self-imploding in our seats and to be sort of nervously wringing our hands over our own spiritual life. It's just, this can either be something that we ignore or, or we're crushed by or we're delivered by. And we say, look, this, this is good. This is a good reminder to engage my heart in love with Christ by the grace of Christ, right? This is a good, healthy opportunity to look in the mirror and say, I don't want to be like the Pharisee who's a whitewashed tomb, who on the outside looks really good, but on the inside is full of dead men's bones, dead inside. And that is a temptation to, to put on the facade and yet be dark inside. Saying one thing and doing another is bad. That's lacking integrity. Saying things about Christ and the gospel and your love for him, but caring nothing about what you're saying at the same time 
is really a dangerous place to be in. Jeremiah 23.1, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Woe to the shepherds. Woe to the leaders who do this. But it also carries down to the flock. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 3, in the last days, there's going to be people who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Avoid such people, Paul says, always learning. They're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's, they're learning a bunch of stuff, but it's never real to them. The gospel is meant to be real to us. Christ is meant to be cherished and loved. Life is hard, but Jesus is there and he is real. We need to engage. And hypocrisy like this is not just your own personal problem. Hypocrisy hurts other people. It always does. You know it in your own life when you're tripping up, when you're slipping up, when you're not engaged, when Christ is not real to you, though he's there, you're disengaged. It hurts people. False teachers who are guilty of this, Titus 1, 11, are to be silenced since they're upsetting whole families, whole families. It happens. Well, first of all, we block truth by duplicitous living. We need to avoid that. That's a symptom of hypocrisy. Second symptom is this. We bind others with legalism. Binding others with legalism. Verse 4. Look at this. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What does this look like? A, a non-spiritual teacher of God's word has no other recourse, listen to this, but then to tie up heavy legalistic burdens on their hearers. What do I mean by that? When you have the spirit of God, you understand that the gospel is about heart change, heart change. It's about repenting. It's about seeing your sin. Look in the mirror. You look at God's holiness and you say, "Mm, I'm blowing it. I, I need to ask forgiveness for things. I need to trust promises from the gospel that I'm forgiven. I need to allow the spirit of God and ask the spirit of God to change my life and change my ways from the inside out. That's gospel work. That's Christianity. A non-spiritual fake who does not have the Holy Spirit inside of him or her, all they can do is make the Bible something of a spiritual test of moral obedience. And so they will tie up a a plan or a rule book on top of somebody's shoulders and they'll say, look, as long as you obey these commands one way or the other, your, your good outweighs your bad, the do's and don'ts of what I'm placing on your shoulders, as long as you do that, you will stay in favor with God. But as soon as you step outside of those do's and don'ts, outside of that rule book, you're outside of the favor of God. And so all I can do is that kind of leader is put more pressure on you to obey. That's legalism. That's legalism. It's legal laws that are extra biblical. I'm not talking about obeying God's word from the heart. That's always important to do. We, we obey by the grace and the power of God because we want to, because God's changed us to be able to do that. We're convicted and we do that. But as soon as you step out of that spiritual arena, all that you have left is legalism. Everything outside of true gospel ministry that's, that's drawn, that comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit As soon as you step outside of that circle, you are in legalistic zone. You're in a legalistic zone. That's where all the cults come from. That's where all the Christian self-help comes from. And 
I know that people will come up with strategies for how to live the Christian life and how to apply it and figure it out. And we all need to do that. And we'll all do that differently with our own personality, with our own gift mix, with our own background, with our own um, sort of the way God has made us to be. But as soon as you make your way, that's extra biblical, that's outside of what God's word says, as soon as you make your way, somebody else's way, that they have to do it the way you did it, or they're out of bounds with God, you are tying up a heavy burden on that person's back. People will do it again and again. They will superimpose their spirituality on top of somebody else. I even hear this with church history and reform circles. I have to throw this out there. It, you know, Martin Luther, and I respect Martin Luther. I'm going to cite him, you know, in something he did in the Reformation that was awesome. He's one of my heroes. But, you know, he used to get up every morning at 4 a.m. And he would, before he did anything, he'd pray for four hours. Well, okay. He was an Augustinian monk in a cell, and he woke up at four. That's okay. You know, I, I wake up sometimes at four too, and I'm adrenalized and I can do it. I, I, I just think sometimes we feel the weight of that, like, oh, I'm automatically in a deficit because I don't do that. I mean, maybe Martin Luther was an insomniac and he needed to redeem the time. I've, I know people in modern day that do stuff like that too. It's just important to understand that anything that exceeds scripture is not... Um, is, is not something that we are bound to obey. Um, extra biblical laws are things that people come up with. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I've applied all these things to myself, Paul said, and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. People go, oh, well, I did this. You didn't do that. Um, I stayed in bounds. I mean, I was a good Sabbatarian. There, there were Sabbath laws that the Pharisees would impose. You could walk this many steps, but if you walked any farther, you're out of bounds. You know, I mean, that's just hogwash stuff to, to hurt people. Martin Luther, and this is something he did that was just great. He he um, was used in church history to, in, to emphasize the individual priesthood of the believer. It's being freed. He was someone who was very free and freeing um, from Catholic tradition that was imposed on people. And he did that. He freed people theologically by emphasizing that each individual Christian is their own born-again Christian. You're your own priest. You don't need a priest to get to God. Jesus is your priest. Jesus is your high priest. He's the way to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so you have your own Bible, your own life in the Lord. And he emphasized that because the Catholic Church wanted to keep you under control with do's and don'ts and traditions and, and religious rites that you needed to stay in bounds um, by doing them. And the way that Martin Luther freed up the church was to deliver the Bible into the hands of the people in their own language. He took the Bible, um, the Erasmus text um, from, from Greek and also the Latin Vulgate, and he, and he interpreted it for the German people in German language. A century later during the um, English Reformation, that was the kind of German Re- Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, a century later you have um, William Tyndale who during the reign of Mary Tudor, who was known as Bloody Mary, who was killing Christians um, in persecution, he um, sort of covertly 
translated the Bible into English, from Latin to English, and put it through printing press and the modern technology of the day, put it in the hands of the people. And one person I was doing a Bible study with years ago um, under a William Tyndale biography um, Bible study, he, he, I said, what does this mean? What does this mean that the word of God was going out and printing presses were, were getting the word of God in English around the world? And this person just raised his hand. He said, you know, I think it was that he was changing the world. He was changing the world. The word of God going into the hands of every person where they can read it and understand it for themselves changes the world. That's just an important thing to think about. First John 4 says, you have the spirit of God, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that's not, that shouldn't be understood in the charismatic theology way, like a second, a second level blessing. You, every Christian has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. What that means is you have the ability to interpret the Bible and apply the Bible to your own life. That's what having the anointing of the Holy Spirit means. You're covered. Anointing is that picture of when a king would be anointed with oil, like David was anointed with the horn of oil. We have the Holy Spirit that has completely enveloped our lives. And what he does is he illuminates the word of God for us to understand it with clarity. It helps to have a teacher explain it. It helps to be part of a Bible study. It helps to read commentators and Bible study books. But you can just understand the word of God for yourself and apply it to your life. That's what frees you from Phariseeism. So God's word is the litmus test for freeing yourself from hypocrisy because You don't have to live a duplicitous life. You don't have to tie up heavy burdens on other people and try to bind people up with what works for you or doesn't work for you, trying to keep yourself in bounds or out of bounds spiritually. People will tie up heavy burdens on other people to feel better about themselves. Have you ever noticed that? Like, uh, you know, oh, I've got another notch in my belt. I've made another legalistic disciple. And that's what these Pharisees were doing. What's sad is the Jewish people saw through the Acts of the Pharisees, uh, they have a commentary called the Talmud. Um, it's an ancient commentary, and William Barclay, he picked out of that commentary seven different kinds of Pharisees of the day. He said, first of all, there was the shoulder Pharisee. It was the meticulous one who would observe the law and keep good deeds as if on his shoulder as a reputation of purity and goodness. These are all personalities, by the way. This is personality number one. Number two, the wait-a-little Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who could always produce an entirely valid excuse for putting off a good deed. It's the college kid Pharisee. Anyway, all right, yeah. Um, he professed the creed of the strictness of the Pharisees, but he could always find an excuse for allowing his practice to lag behind. Um, there's number three, the bruised and bleeding Pharisee. The Talmud speaks of a plague self-afflicting. It's the victim Pharisee, right? The Pharisee received their name for this reason. And they, would, they were bruised because what they would do is they weren't allowed to talk to women in public. And so when they would see a woman, they would blind themselves and they would run into things. And they were known as the bruised. They would run into walls and buildings. There's the humpback Pharisee, not humpback whale, humpbacked Pharisee. And they were humbled. They were so humbled that they wouldn't lift their feet and they would kind of um, sort of walk around groveling and they would be tripped up um, from 
tripping over roots and branches on the ground. Then number five, the ever-reckoning or compounding Pharisee. This is, no offense, these are the engineer-minded Pharisees. Uh, He was forever striking a balance sheet between himself and God, you know, make the T-bar and graphic. Um, And he believed that every good deed he did put God a little further in his debt. Then number six, the timid or fearing Pharisee was always in dread of divine punishment. This is the guilt-ridden Pharisee. This is the, you know, you're in your own head. He was therefore cleansing the outside of the cup and the platter um, of his life so that he might see some good. Um, The God-fearing Pharisee was the last one. We know that some Pharisees came to Christ like Paul or Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. They really loved God, found delight and obedience in the law of God. It just, again, it's the universal, this isn't just for Pharisees. This is the universal nature of legalism. These personalities are in all of us. They're named amongst all of us. We do this in modern ways all the time. We need to be delivered from the threat of hypocrisy. How are we delivered? We need to identify these symptoms. The first one, we block truth by duplicitous living. We need to look in the mirror and say, am I the same on the inside as the out? Am I alive spiritually? Secondly, you're binding others with legalism. It's sort of setting up heavy burdens on people's lives. This second one is really sad. Look at the end of verse 4. It says, they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. What is the them? What is it that somebody's unwilling to move? They're unwilling to move this. Here, listen. It's unwilling to move the burden that you put on somebody's life. You tie them up and you leave them there. You tie them up and you don't care. They're tied up in knots and you just, you don't care the damage that you've done. Um, In the early church, there was the forbidding of foods and marriage. First Timothy 4, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. um, Created that we're supposed to receive with thanksgiving. It's like, hey, you can't eat that. You can't go there. You can't touch that. Wait, you're getting, you're dating in that way. You need to date this way. Wait, dating isn't real. Christians shouldn't do that. Or wait, it's only this. You should only go to this school and not that school. I mean, all of those, those sort of phrases, all of those ideas tie people in knots. And you have to be very careful with what you load onto somebody's shoulders about how they feel about their own position before God. Because it's, it's exceeding scripture and it's tying up that burden. And people are unwilling to move it because they need to feel good about themselves, leaving them right where they are. It's the opposite of Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All right, number C is uh, building ego with facades. Building ego with facades. Not only will they block the truth and bind others, but they'll build up their own ego. They have no other place to go. They, they need to have some internal fuel for what they're doing. They're definitely not going to, in this legalistic religion, feel good about God or have any sense of joy in their own hearts. They don't have the Holy Spirit. The only way they can feel good about their life is um, self-worship and praise. They want to be praised for their position, for who they are. They're empty spiritually and they need approval. You've heard people talk about being approval junkies. They just live for praise. 
I remember this is a sad story, but it was a, a, a preacher who was gaining some ground in um, conferences and he was preaching away and he's since kind of fallen off the scene. But I heard behind the scenes that he was talking one time to a fellow spiritual leader and he said, I love to preach. He had gone out of preaching and come back into preaching. And he said, I love to preach because I love the strokes people give me after I preach. I thought that is despicable. That's horrible. It's the idea that you're looking for people to affirm you for what you've just done. That's what this kind of empty legalistic person does. It says verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Phylacteries were these leather boxes that they would hang on their heads. The Pharisees would. And they would hang on their hands and they made them larger and larger and larger and filled them with little tiny scrolls from Exodus chapter 12 and Deuteronomy 6. And they would tie them up and put them there, Exodus 13, I should say, in Deuteronomy 6. And it was talking about how the word of God is supposed to always be in front of your eyes. It's always having it in front of you. You know, I don't want to say that it's wrong to wear a Christian t-shirt, but it's just like, hey, I'm spiritual. Or, hey, look how big my Bible is right now. I mean, again, nothing wrong with having a big Bible or a study Bible, but it's the motive behind it. Now, their motive probably originally was okay, hanging the Bible on their body, but eventually, this was through the Maccabean intertestamental period, it became sort of out of control. I talked to one of our seminary students um, who's from a different country, and he was saying that um, as a sp- sign of spirituality, uh, the, the Bibles would be inspected by his Sunday school superintendents and teachers, and they would look at the Bible, and he was early in his Christian life, and his Bible was pretty clean because it hadn't been used a whole lot, and so secretly he used to take dirt and rub on it in certain areas so that when the inspector would look through, he would say, oh, you know, he, he's a spiritual guy. He later on had to repent of that. So the phylacteries were, were big and the fringes on the robes were long. Um, the idea of having you know fringes back then actually was a sign according to Zechariah and some passages of redemption. But Because Jesus even had tassels on his robe, remember, where the woman with the issue of blood reached and grabbed the bottom of his robe, that tassel. But it's the idea of doing it in a way where you're trying to present yourself. Your motive is a motive of superficial facade and spirituality. The Pharisees would wear white robes, everybody in the common. Um, commoners would wear multicolored robes. They would wear functionally you know, sized robes. But the Pharisees would wear long white robes where it looked like they were hovering across the ground because you couldn't see their feet. It was as if they were walking like angels, hovering in holiness, and they really weren't. Verse 6 brings us to another point, point D, bowing to idols of personal honor. What does that look like? It says, they love their place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi but other, um, by others. Stop there. They love the place of honor. Love is phileo. They, they're like friends with this. It's, it's feeding their hearts. They need affirmation. They, they love it. They love to sit at the head of the table at Thanksgiving. They don't want to be at the kids' table. They wanted in the religious scene to be seated in the religious centers near the relics. They wanted to be, to be honored and praised and praised for their title. Um, they wanted to be greeted as rabbi 
or teacher, or literally rabbi means master in this context. You're like a master teacher. Now, it's not sinful to be titled rabbi, I don't think. Jesus himself was called rabbi. Mary in the garden tomb scene where he, where he had raised from the dead said rabbi or rabboni, um, teacher, master. And it was appropriate. But it wasn't just appropriate to Christ. It's appropriate to a teacher who's not looking um, for kind of the stroke of affirmation from their title. That's never good. You never want to be um, looking for a title to affirm you for who you are. That becomes an idol of self. It's narcissism to a grotesque degree. Narcissism is like kind of the, the, the in vogue condemnation on people as these self-righteous people. Everybody, if everybody's a narcissist, then nobody's a narcissist, right? I mean, narcissism is the idea that you're that you know, mythological person who looked at himself and got so enamored with self in looking into the pool of water that you became like a plant that's um, you know, stuck that way. And there are people who are grotesquely self-centered. But really, this is pride, it's pride. It's pride to a degree where you want to be greeted out in the public square for a title that is your identity. Where you're supposed to be as a Christian self-deflecting, deflecting the glory to Christ, not to yourself. But you want to be greeted in the marketplaces. Verse 8, uh, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. You know what levels the playing field is understanding that we're all really equal whether you have an official title or not. Peter did this. He in 1 Peter 5 said, I'm one of the elders. Remember, he was the chief apostle. He was the spokesperson for the apostles. The, he was part of the intimate three with Peter, James, and John. And in 1 Peter 5, he said, look, I'm one of the elders with you. I'm one of the church leaders, whether you're a deacon, a deaconess, a pastor. I mean, these are titles to sort of organize the church, but really we're all just brothers and sisters. I think about it like being a senior pastor. I mean, that, that could be a, uh, you know, inappropriately leveraged title where it's like, I'm the senior pastor. That's, you know, leveraging a title is the lowest form of leadership. It's, it's, the, it's the most sort of disgusting version of leadership where you become an authoritarian. That's just wrong on so many levels. It's the last resort. If you're saying, because of my position, you have to do this. Nobody wants to follow a leader like that. You want to be um, a leader who's responsible for the position that you're given, but you want to wield your responsibility in service to others. You want to be someone who's giving leadership, not wielding it as an authoritarian. Um, when I dismount the pulpit and, and, you know, when I'm down there, hopefully I'm the same person I am when I talk up here. That's what I want to be. Uh, I used to stand when I, and we've been here now quite a while, but, you know, years and years and years ago when we first came here, we came from the South where I thought maybe the church would want to like meet and greet going out the door and you shake hands with everybody. I tried that one Sunday and people just sort of avoided, you know, went around. There's four doors anyway. There's escape hatches everywhere. But I began to realize Alaska is different than the South and praise the Lord because I enjoy it. I talk to some of you who will come up and I'm willing and open to talk to anybody in spiritual need or prayer or just friendship. But I like it that everybody talks to everybody because we're all just friends in the gospel. We're brothers and sisters and family 
in Christ. We're all under one father. Do you see that phrase, verse 9? And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. I don't think it's wrong to call somebody a father, it's, but it's wrong to perceive that that father by that title is the source of truth. That's where the Roman Catholics, again, err when they call someone father. They're, they're giving them the title as the source of truth or someone who's giving an authoritative word on par with the Bible. That's misguided. That's what Jesus is calling out, where you, you put somebody as the father of truth when really there's only one true father of truth. There's really one true teacher, and that's Jesus, one true instructor. Do you see that in verse 10? Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor. That's didaskalos, which is the word for teacher. It's not wrong to call somebody a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, or a Christian school teacher, or whatever, but it's wrong to elevate someone as the authority in place of God, where you're looking to that instructor as the source of truth. We're all just people. I mean, we're all given spiritual gifts, and one of the spiritual gifts is to be a teacher. It's just to remember not to use being a teacher or use any position whatsoever as a power play. I think one of the reasons why um, the, the Spirit of God sometimes gets quenched in a church is because people elevate themselves for personal glory, and you can't do that. So we have to diffuse... Hypocrisies. How do we do that? It's verses 11 and 12. Let's just wrap it up quick. This is the solutions to hypocrisy. Verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. What does that mean? It means if you esteem yourself high, you need to get low. It means if you're going to be like Jesus, you need to realize that your goal in life is to serve, not to be affirmed. You have to die to self. You, you're not someone who blocks truth with a duplicitous life. You are, you're yielded to the truth and you say, I, you know, I'm a wretched sinner and I need to obey truth by the grace of God. I'm not going to block it. I'm not going to bind extra biblical things over people's heads so that they'll feel better. I'm not going to bow to some sort of self-praise and idolatry. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to live this duplicitous life. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to reverse my mindset. And then secondly, I'm going to write my practice. I'm not going to raise myself up. I'm going to raise God up. If I raise myself, God's going to put me down. If I humble myself, then there will be blessing, even though I'm not looking for it. This is the right practice and the right mindset. Think of Hannah when she dedicated her son, Samuel, to the temple. She was humbled in her posture, humbled in her prayer. Unworthy Mary, when she found, was found to be with a child with the Messiah, Luke 1, 46, in the Magnificat, she was saying, I'm, I'm humbled to find this out. I'm unworthy in my own heart. And God raises up and he puts down. He's sovereign over all these things. Matthew 18, 4, we're to be the greatest in the kingdom is like a child. Proverbs 15, 33, honor comes, be- humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22, 4, reward for humility and the fear of the Lord comes. And James 4, 6 through 10, God opposes the proud but gives grace to what? The humble. So just to finish up, I was doing what all good Alaskans do. Um, Right before it snows, you clean out your garage, right? 
I had a little bit of extra time this year to get my garage clean, um, which was helpful for me. I was doing it a couple of weeks ago and taking a bunch of boxes and shoving them in the back of my Suburban. And, um, you know, I, I just had the radio on. It was 5 p.m. I never listened to myself on the radio, and that's not a statement of humility. It's just I live across the street, so I don't drive very far. And my Bronco doesn't have a radio. <laughs> So, but the Suburban does, so I just had it on and I was preaching or, you know, it was a way long time ago sermon on First Peter that was on the radio about humbling yourself under the elders and humbling yourself because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's what it was on. And I thought, sounds pretty good. Um, sounds clear. I didn't feel awkward. That can happen. We're just like, oh, you know, that doesn't sound good. But it was coming off okay. But what struck me in my heart is that as I was shoving boxes in, you know, in the back of my suburban, just get rid of it, open the garage up, I was thinking, I want to be the same person that I'm preaching that we need to be um, as I am right now. And even if I'm, you know, in a different state of mind or doing something functionally different, I need to stay soft and be humble whether I'm preaching it, I, I need to live the Christian life in the way that I'm preaching it to be lived. And that's the ultimate practice which you preach. It was a good reminder for me, and I want us all to be reminded that as we look in the mirror at how to, how to unpack hypocrisy, that we don't forget the kind of person that we see right now as we look at ourselves and say, I want to repent of some things and deal with the pride in my own life.